Hi, church. Hey, go ahead and uh, grab your Bible or open your Bible app. Find Isaiah chapter 61. Uh, we have just spent the previous 10 weekends of this summer studying this Old Testament prophetic book. And uh, I don't know about you, but this has by no means been light summer reading. Uh, but I kinda, I've been impressed with us as a church family being willing to tackle a book that can be difficult to read and to understand at times. And so whether you're joining us online or from one of our campuses across the East Bay or even our brothers and sisters who are gonna be reading, us, reading this from prison, go ahead, give yourself a pat on the back right now. We've done it, we made it, good job. And uh, today we'll wrap up our study through Isaiah by looking at one final passage. But before we get into it, I've got a question for you. Have you ever experienced a moment in your life where you wish you could just have a do-over? You know what I'm talking about? Like those moments where you say something or you do something and you just wish, oh, I wish I could take that back. One of these moments for me was when I was four and I, I had the genius idea to throw a paperweight at my brother's head and I cracked open his skull. Yeah, I was definitely not ready for the consequences that that would bring about. Uh, another time was when I was 16 four months into having my driver's license, and I'm driving by myself on, on a way to my soccer tournament, and I take a curve going way too fast, and I just completely lose control of the car. And I swerve off the road, go over the curb, bust all four tires in my mom's car, <laughs> and then I skid for about 50 yards on the grass before coming to a stop. Like, the experience, it was traumatic in and of itself enough, but then having to be a 16-year-old and pay for that mechanics bill, man, that was, that was a tough pill to swallow for me. Or even, gosh, just this past weekend, I remember uh, it was Thursday, and I go to the kitchen to grab my phone off of the table, and then I just fumble it. And it falls to the ground, and I look down, and there is my iPhone with a completely shattered screen. <laughs> and it's the worst feeling ever. And now I have like tiny, jagged shards of glass in my thumbs because I continue to use it, and I'm too cheap to go buy a new one. But that's just my problem. But I think we all have had situations like that, right? Maybe those are minor examples. I bet if we turned around to the people next to us and we were really honest, we'd even have more significant situations than those. We, we'd be able to share examples of decisions we've made, maybe uh, things we've said, roads we've walked down that have really been the cause of so much pain for ourselves, for someone else. And we just wish we could have a do-over. And it's in moments like this where I wish that life were kind of like an Etch-a-Sketch, right? Anyone have one of these? Yeah, just me? Okay, was anyone really good at this thing? I was awful at it, I hated my Etch-a-Sketch. But this was back when toys were simpler, right? No batteries, no beeping, no flashing, no 90,000 pieces that come along with it. Nope, just two knobs and on the bottom of the screen and a display that lets you draw pictures. And if you mess up, if you make a mistake, all you had to do was, right, shake the thing a couple times and boom, clean screen. A, a chance to start completely over. And man, if only life could be like this, right? <sighs> Think about it. Oh, I make, I make a stupid charge to my credit card. No problem, <laughs> right? Oh, I, uh, I ask a woman when she's due only to find out that she's not pregnant. No problem, right? Oh, the Giants, they don't make the playoffs. I mean, would that really be so bad? I don't know, you know, you get it, you get it. 
But see, if you're like me, and you've ever wished that you had a do-over, then I think you're going to resonate with what Isaiah is going to teach us in chapter 61. So hopefully you've had the chance to find it. We're going to read the first four verses, and this is where Isaiah tells us about this person called the Messiah. Verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Okay, so first off, uh, we know this passage is about the Messiah because of the word anointed. Right there in verse 1 where Isaiah records the phrase, the Lord has anointed me. And the literal meaning of of Messiah is anointed one. And what's significant about this, though? Well, you see, uh, all of Israel's kings, all of their spiritual leaders, as they ascended into power, they were anointed with oil. And that was a symbol of God's Holy Spirit. Now, don't picture this anointing as being like someone rubbing a little bit of olive oil on your forehead. No, it was more of like a drenching. Like picture getting one of those uh, Kirkland-sized olive oil jugs and you're just pouring that completely over your head, right? It's a mess, it's everywhere, there's no way you're getting those oil stains out of your clothes. And this anointing, it meant that you are divinely installed as our king or as our priest. You're commissioned, you're approved by God, and this anointing ceremony is what made it official for this person to lead God's people. And that's what happened throughout Israel's history with their kings uh, and, and prophets and priests. They were all the anointed ones. But you see, alongside all of that, there was always this idea that God would one day bring about not just any king, not just any priest, but the king, the priest, like in an ultimate sense. And this person would once and for all lead Israel into full connection with God. Uh, This person would restore creation back to its original order, and this person would rule over the nations of the earth forever and ever. And Israel, they held out tremendous hope that one day God would bring them the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who would deliver them from their enemies, who would would bring about peace and, and prosperity and justice to the world. That God would bring about the the, the one who would bring God's kingdom uh, here to earth. And with it, all that would come with what Isaiah prophesied about in chapter 61. The brokenhearted would be healed. The captives would be freed. Those who mourn and are in despair will have their joy restored. The Messiah is the anointed one who would finally make everything right. And so they waited And they looked and they hoped and they prayed and they waited some more all throughout history for the anointed one of all anointed ones. And then Isaiah, of course, he dies before he could ever meet this Messiah that he wrote about. 
And the people who Isaiah prophesied about, that, that lived hundreds of years after Isaiah. Well, they read the prophet's writings and then they died without ever meeting the Messiah as well. And, and so it went, generation after generation after generation, until this guy called Jesus of Nazareth comes onto the scene. Flip over to Luke chapter four. And uh, Luke is the third book of the four New Testament books that we refer to as the Gospels. Uh, these are the books that catalog the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. And in the fourth chapter of his Gospel, Luke, he gives us some really important insight into the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Take a look at verse 14. In Luke chapter four, Luke writes, Jesus returned to Galilee in the, same, in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. And he went up to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue as it was his custom and he stood up to read. Okay, pause for a second. I want us all to imagine that we are people from Nazareth, okay? Think about it. You grew up in this small, small podunk town and you've known Jesus for the past 30 years of your life. Right, after all, how could you not know the guy after there was so much gossip and controversy surrounding his birth? And you don't know him super well. You're not in his close circle, but, but he was really good friends with your oldest nephew, and you saw him every weekend at synagogue, and he built your kitchen table. You're pretty familiar with the guy. And now he's all grown up, and he's left Nazareth, and you start hearing all of these stories about him. All of these crazy uh, rumors start spreading throughout Nazareth. Hey, 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 have you heard what has been going on with Jesus? Yeah, yeah, that's right, Joseph's kid, that guy. Like, it's unbelievable what everyone is saying about him. I mean, I always thought he was a nice boy, but like, wow, I never in a million years imagined that he would, well, for instance, have, did you hear about what happened last week? Oh my gosh. Oh my God, you haven't heard about what happened in the house last week. Oh my gosh, I can't wait to tell you. Okay, here's what happened last week. I heard from my sister who heard from her friend who heard from her cousin who was there at Jesus' baptism and he said that when Jesus was baptized, the heavens, they opened up and this dove descended down and then you heard this heavenly voice that said, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. <laughs> I know, it's insane. It's crazy. I almost didn't believe it myself. But, but trust me, you, I, you, my sister's friends Cousin, he wouldn't lie. He wouldn't lie. You can trust me on that. Right? Think about that. Hearing all those things. Have you ever had a moment like this? When, when someone tells you something and you just can't believe that it's actually true? You can't believe that it's real? You know, it wasn't that long ago when I discovered that my adult sister, who will remain unnamed, uh, when I discovered that she actually did not know that reindeer were real animals. She thought they were like unicorns or something. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> Seriously? No, they are real animals. <laughs> the flying ones aren't, but reindeer are real animals. <laughs> and that's how it's got to be for these people, how they're feeling. There's been so much talk. There's been all of these stories and rumors circulating about who Jesus is and what he's come here to do. And now he's come back to his hometown. He's in the synagogue that he's, he went to every weekend for the past 30 years. And he stands up and he's about to read from scripture. Everybody in there's got to be sitting on the edge of their seat just wondering what he's going to say, what he's going to do next. 
And it's this moment that Luke sets up for us in chapter four. Man, I love it. I love the Bible. And then get this, out of all of the things Jesus could have done, out of all of the ways that, that he could have addressed his hometown and clarified for them some of the stories they've been hearing, Jesus, he stands up, he's in the synagogue, he's handed the scroll that contains the book of Isaiah, which would have been a massive scroll, right? 66 chapters in this book. And he knows exactly where he wants to go. He turns immediately to Isaiah chapter 61. And this is what he says. Look at verse 18 of Luke 4. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Think about it. Before Jesus performs his very first miracle, before his first healing takes place, before he even calls his very first disciple, Jesus intentionally and publicly proclaims who he is and what he has come here to do. He says, hey, hey, you know that Messiah that you've been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds of years? Well, guess what? I'm him. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing because I am the Messiah. I am the anointed one. But here's the thing. Most of Israel, they thought of the Messiah in terms of government and economics first. And, and, and this town of Nazareth, this audience, they were no exception. The Messiah was supposed to come in and lead them to military victory, free them from Roman slavery, take them back to the golden age of Israel when they didn't have to answer to anyone. But Jesus, he pushes back on Israel's notion of exactly what the Messiah's mission really is. And that's where things get a little scary. Uh, when Jesus says, no, that's not what the Messiah does, they turn on him, right? His own town, his own family, his own friends, the audience, they go ballistic, in fact. They mob up and they drag Jesus out of the city limits and they try to throw him off a cliff. And the only reason they don't succeed is because Jesus does some sort of like Jedi mind trick on them and he gets away. Read the rest of Luke chapter four sometime this week. It's crazy, his own hometown, the people who knew him most, they try to kill him simply because he was claiming to be the Messiah and his version of Messiah, it didn't line up with what they thought the Messiah should be. See, the Israelites, they were given a promise from God and they waited and they waited and they waited for it, but they were waiting for the wrong thing. They, they were so focused on their idea of what the Messiah should be that when the promise actually came to be, they just totally missed it. What promise has God made to you that you are still waiting on? Are you waiting for the right thing? Or maybe are we so focused on God coming through in the way that we think is best that maybe we've missed the fact that he's already come through for us. 
See, what many of the Israelites didn't realize is that Jesus was the Messiah that they had been waiting for. He was, he was the anointed one that Isaiah ta- had prophesied about some 700 years earlier. He was the one who would fix everything, who would make everything right once again. And what was true then is still true now. Jesus, he is the Messiah. He's the one and the only one who can fix the problems that humanity faces today. Flip back to Isaiah 61. Isaiah tells us what the Messiah has come here to do. Isaiah says, hey, are you someone who is poor and in need of good news? And being poor here isn't just referring to money. He's speaking to those who are uh, afflicted with calamity, the poor in circumstance, the poor in spirit. It refers to those who would say, hey, I feel like an outsider. Those who would say, I feel less than. I I feel invisible, forgotten, neglected. And Jesus would say, hey, I have come to bring you hope. Are you someone who is brokenhearted? Sometimes we're brokenhearted due to a loss of relationship, a a betrayal, a a death, a falling out. Or or perhaps we're brokenhearted due to the loss of a dream, Hopes left unmet, desires left unfulfilled, and Jesus would say, hey, I have come to bring you healing. For those of us who feel captive by our sin, who who feel imprisoned by our addictions, who feel detained by our circumstances, or, or who feel confined by our sickness, for those of us who feel enslaved to our past and to our shame, Jesus says, hey, I have come to bring you freedom. Are there any of us who would feel like a prisoner of darkness? And I'm not simply talking about a physical darkness. Most often this comes in the form of a spiritual darkness or or even a mental darkness. I once had my friend describe to me the depression that she went through a few years back and she said, I know what it's like to feel so alone so broken beyond repair, so inadequate, so anxiety-ridden, so afraid and unsure and oppressed by a darkness that I didn't know how to get out of. And so immersed in that dark place in my head that I didn't even know if there was a way out. And Jesus would say, hey, I have come to bring you peace. This is who the Messiah is. This is why Jesus came to earth. And man, this just, it blows my mind when I think about that. In a world full of religions where humanity pursues the God, Christianity, it stands alone as the one where God pursues humanity. And this is why I follow Jesus. Like, this is what it's all about. I don't follow Jesus because I've gotten all of my questions answered and I never wrestle with any doubts. I don't follow Jesus because I got my act together first and I'm a pretty good person. No, I follow Jesus because Jesus came for me and he loved me when I was at my most broken. And he changed my life. And he's given me hope and he's brought me healing and in him I have found freedom and peace. Like this is who the Messiah is. Amen. And then look at verse two. Isaiah says, the Messiah has come to proclaim 
the year of the Lord's favor. This is actually an important reference to the year of Jubilee. What is the year of Jubilee, you ask? Well, you can uh, read about the year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25, and it's based on the concept of Sabbath. Uh, The Sabbath happened every seven days. God said, hey, every seven days, you got to rest. You're going to take a break. You're not going to work. Maybe you've heard of that before. And then God also went on to say every seventh year is going to be the Sabbath year. And what happens during this time is the land gets to rest. Uh, Let the land uh, rest and replenish. And if you're familiar with farming, this is a really ancient form of crop rotation where uh, it helps put nutrients back into the soil. So every seven days, a person got to rest and replenish. And then every seven years, the land got to rest and replenish. And then God says, okay, every seventh seven year, so once about every 50 years, something really crazy is going to happen. And that is the year of Jubilee. This was the Sabbath year, but like on steroids. It's insane. No, seriously. If you read through Leviticus 25, you'll see there's three main things here, three main purposes for the year of Jubilee. And they're this. Releasing, returning, and resting. There, during the year of Jubilee, there was a release of debt and a freeing of slaves. Think about it. Every Jubilee, any, any land that had been sold or acquired over the past 49 years, it was reverted back to its original owners. If you, if you, you and your family went through hard times and you had to sell off some of your land or give away some of your possessions, your family got them back during the year of Jubilee. And if you were no longer alive, it was given back to your family. Think about it. Anyone who had been sold into slavery because of their debt, it was too large. They couldn't work it off. And so that was a very common practice back in time. They become indentured servants. During the year of Jubilee, they would be freed. Their slate completely wiped clean. That sounds pretty awesome. But it was also about returning It was a time to return home to the place you were from, to to your own clan, your own people. It it was a time of homecoming where you got to reconnect with long-lost relatives and and sit at the table and enjoy meals together. You got to renew and strengthen your family bonds. It it was a time to mend and heal broken relationships, a, a time to return and to make things right with the people around you. Man, I don't know about you, but a year dedicated to that, that sounds good to me. But it was also about resting. You got the whole year off work. Some of you are like, yep, sign me up. That sounds good. (laughs) I don't even care about the rest of this stuff. An entire year of sabbatical. No working, no sowing, no reaping, or even having to store away food in order to survive. No, God, he miraculously provided all that you needed. I mean, all of this, it seems too good to be true, right? This concept of jubilee that God instituted, it's like having and edge a sketch for your life. And every single person in Israel was guaranteed a complete fresh start, a total do-over at least once in their lifetime with the Jubilee. You know, I once heard the story of the 1929 Rose Bowl. It's a college football game. Uh, and, and this year it was between Georgia Tech and, uh, and the University of California. And it's the first half, it's 0-0, and Georgia Tech has the ball but they fumble it. And the ball is recovered by a Cal player. Uh, He's the center, his name is Roy Regals. And in the midst of the chaos of the play, Roy, he gets confused and he starts running. But he's going the wrong way. He's running the ball that he just recovered back towards his own end zone. 
And finally, one of his teammates catch him and and stops him at their own one-yard line right before he's about to score a touchdown against his own team. Right? Not a good situation. And that play, it actually led to Georgia Tech scoring a safety, which, if you don't know football, is worth two points. And Cal ended up losing the game by just one point. And halftime comes, and Roy, he's in the locker room just in tears. He's completely broken. He's embarrassed. He's ashamed. He's feeling like he's blown it, and he's let his team down. He's let his coaches down in the biggest game of his life. And it's in the locker room at halftime that the coach tells the team, hey, every, every player who started the first half is going to be who starts the second half, including Roy. Despite his mistake, which has actually gone down as the biggest blunder in college football history, Roy's coach offers him a do-over, a chance to start the second half with a clean slate. And that's the kind of do-over that the year of Jubilee provides. It's an opportunity to no longer be defined by the mistakes that you made in your past. I mean, can you imagine that? No matter how bad a family has been crushed by circumstance over the years, no matter how many bad decisions had been made, every 50 years you were given this great gift of spiritual and relational and economic restoration. And the whole process of Jubilee, it was so God could instruct the Israelites, hey, this is how it can be. This is how good life can be if you just follow my commands. The unfortunate thing is that most biblical scholars, they believe that Israel never actually did this. At any point, ever, in its entire history. They never followed through on Jubilee. They all knew about it, but it was never acted upon. And as I was studying and I was reading this the past few weeks, and I think about that, I'm like, what a waste, right? Like, I can't believe they didn't take advantage of this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. All they had to do was follow God's commands. But, you know, then I thought of how easy it is for me to just fall into the same behavior. I thought of all of the times where I miss out on the best that God has for me because I become so focused on being in control, on doing things my own way, on making sure things turn out the way that I think is best, instead of just trusting God and doing it his way. You know, even though I'm a knucklehead, just like the Israelites, God is so gracious with me just like he was so gracious with them. I mean, we've seen that all throughout the book of Isaiah. They completely turn their backs on God and he's giving them chance after chance after chance. And even though Israel had wasted the unbelievable do-over that the Jubilee provided Jesus, he comes along in Luke 4 and he says, okay, I will bring the Jubilee. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus himself, he's the perfect embodiment of everything that happens during this year of Jubilee. In in Jesus and Jesus alone are all debts truly forgiven. In, In him, all slaves are finally free. Jesus, he is the ultimate rest. You know, the reason any of this matters to us is because we all need a Jubilee. We do. We all need a chance to start over. 
We all need Jesus. And I think this past weekend, with the events that have been going on in Charlottesville, Virginia, that, man, it's another heartbreaking example of how desperately we need Jesus. The hate, the violence, the racism. It sickens me. It maddens me. It saddens me because we all are people who bear God's image. And you know, I believe as followers of Jesus, we have a responsibility to speak up against the hatred and the bigotry that blasphemes the image of God that's in all of us. We can't ignore it. We can't look away. We can't excuse it. But you know, I also believe that Jesus has come to confront and to restore even evil situations like that. I believe that Jesus can wipe the slate clean. And I think for any of us who would call ourselves a follower of Christ that there's two next steps we can just take this week in response. The first is to pray. We've gotta pray that God would show us how to be his light, how to be his life to the hurting world around us. Because man, I don't know how to do that on my own. I fail, I mess up, I say the wrong thing. I need the Holy Spirit's help, I need the Holy Spirit's guidance. I think the second thing we can do this week is to just have a conversation. Maybe it's a conversation between you and God, and you're saying, God, search my heart, reveal to me any areas, any corners, any crevices that, that contain prejudice. Maybe it's a conversation between you and your kids that you talk with them about what's going on in our country, you talk with them about racism. We have to be talking to our kids about this. I mean, the, the guy who drove his car into that crowd yesterday, he was a kid, he was 20. Maybe it's a conversation you have with someone you're close to who's a minority. And just that willingness to sit down with them and hear their perspective, hear their heart on how the events this past weekend have been affecting them. But see, I believe that just as hatred and racism are learned behaviors, I know that grace and love are learned behaviors as well. And so we've gotta be the body of Christ who says, God, show me how to show your grace and your love to everyone around me. But you see, we can't do anything, we can't give anything that we haven't already accepted ourselves. And so we need Jesus. We need that clean slate. We need the chance to be freed from the things that enslave us, to have all of our debts canceled out and all of our mistakes wiped away, to return to the place where our soul is truly at home, the place where we can find healing and rest, and that place is Jesus Christ.
Like Jesus is the jubilee. And in Jesus, we are given that clean slate. We don't have to strive to earn God's love. We don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to try and try and try to make up for all the wrong things that we've done. No, Jesus, he's already paid that price on our behalf through his death. And we just have to accept that he is who he says he is. He is the Messiah. Jesus says, hey, I'm the one you've been looking for. I may not be exactly what you expected, but let me tell you, I am more than you could ever imagine. Who I really am is what you really need. And church, I believe that there are some of us here today that are listening to this on one of our campuses or even online or maybe even someone who will be reading this from prison and you have never made the decision to follow Jesus. You've, you've never said, Jesus, I believe you're the son of God. I believe you're the Messiah. I surrender my life to you. Forgive me, make me new. Give me that do-over, that clean slate. And if that's you, I wanna encourage you to let today be the day that you take that next step. We've got a prayer team who will be up front on all of our campuses who would love the opportunity to pray with you after the service and talk with you more about what it means to follow Jesus. And as we bring our summer series through the book of Isaiah to an end, the thing I've loved about studying this book is that it points us right to Christ. And over and over and over again, Isaiah says, hey, Jesus, he's the Jubilee, he's the Messiah, he's here and he's worth following. And I just wanna close today by reading Isaiah 61, verse four again. This is the promise that is given to those who choose to follow the Messiah. It says, they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. I love that. You see, Jesus, he doesn't just forgive us and then provide us with a clean slate and then period, end of story. No, he also gives us purpose and meaning for our new life. He, he works in us and through us in order to rebuild and renew the people and the places around us that have been long devastated. He works through us to reach into what may seem like the most hopeless and ruined of situations, and instead, he brings about healing and restoration. See, when we choose to follow Jesus to believe that he is the Messiah, we don't just get to experience the Jubilee, we get to be people who bring the Jubilee everywhere we go. And with it, we get to bring the hope and the forgiveness and the healing and the renewal and the rest that we find in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before you just acknowledging our own brokenness, our own sinfulness, and our great need for a savior, for a Messiah, for you, Jesus, to come into our lives 
to give us a clean slate, a fresh start, a do-over. And I'm so thankful that you're a God who provides that. God, I pray that if there is anyone in this room, anyone listening to my voice or reading this later, God, who has never made the decision to follow you, I pray that you would just draw them close to you right now. God, that they would just feel your Holy Spirit and the love that you have for them and that they would have the courage and the boldness to take that next step, to surrender to you. And God, I pray for any of us who are wrestling through the events of this past weekend that we would come to you. God, that we would surrender our thoughts and our feelings to you and we would ask for your Holy Spirit to give us wisdom, to give us direction, to give us courage to do what you are calling your people to do. And God, as we move forward, as we have conversations this week, God, we do so with the confidence in knowing that you are a God who enters into broken and desperate and desolate situations and you bring about hope and healing and restoration. And so God, we ask for you to move that way in this situation right now. We love you, Lord, and we pray all of these things in your son's mighty and matchless name. Amen.